How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode four. Tie. Four. Oh, my God. Congratulations, Jake. Congratulations, Zeke. We that is not, insane. We had a baby. Nine months. Oh, hey. Oh, my. Yeah, no, it is to exactly today, the 21st, nine months. Yeah. Since we started. That's... Happy nine month anniversary. Ah, uh, Is that a thing in relationships? Do they have nine months anniversaries? I feel like today they have like one day anniversaries at this point. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I wouldn't know. I've never been in a relationship longer than nine months. Oh, anyway, no. <laughs> let's, let's talk about some movies. That was, so, that was so sad. No, how are you, Jake? I'm good. Now that you said that, I'm also reminded I've never been in a relationship more than nine months. I'm just like... Whoa. Nah. I mean, no. that's okay. I actually, got a, I actually got a thing in my notes. I just want to talk about how lit our memes were on Sunday. Our lit memes. Yeah, like just yesterday, I was just going... I was like, there's a lot of really good memes today. Yes, and you just ha- happened to put up a lot in our group chat. Yeah, that's what I'm going for right now because <laughs> but I've so many good, so many good. I'm memes. one for the meme culture, you know. I'm just like me, I always find one really funny, but it's been out for like three years, and people are like, "You're an old man. Why do you bring out a meme that's three years old?" Right. I mean, if it, if it's good content, it's good content. I'm going for it now, and I'm starting to realize I'm none of them I can really ever repeat on the show. To be honest, there's a bunch here of just Joker in places. Yes, you are quite. Uh, savage <laughs> with your memes. <laughs> no, they don't I, hold back. I mean, uh, this being man. a movie podcast, Jake, yeah. what have you caught in the last week? Uh, I've caught a lot, including the film of the week. I've seen nine films in the last week. Can we just point out the fact that I think you might be catching up to me very, very, very quickly? That's It's kind of scary. I'm at like, what, 121 one now this year? I think I'm sitting around 180. Damn, you but you haven't really been keeping track the last couple of no, months. No, no. I'm sure I'll find an exact number for mm. you, uh, maybe in the next week or I so. I demand it by Friday. But I honestly think <laughs> this might turn into a bit of a contest towards the end of the year, because well, you are uh-uh. steadily catching up quite quickly. The problem, I feel like, is you say you might be at 180. I think you're way higher than that. I just think mm. that you've forgotten a lot of... I think that happens week to week. Like you just, yeah. I think you forget a lot of the stuff that next, you've watched. Next year is definitely going to be like a rigorous list. And I think the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to stick very much to list, score, like list it, score it, and basic comments. Because I think... Yeah. Well, that's, that's basically what I do when I'm the letterbox now. Yeah. Because but, uh, yeah. Yeah, some films, honestly, I watch them... I have really nothing to say. Yeah. Like one of the films that we both saw in the theatre t- this week. That's true. Which one was that, Zeke? Uh, Zombie Land 2. We mm, managed double tap. Double tap. Yeah, um, we saw that on, what was it, Thursday? Yes. Yes, the yeah. day it came out. Thursday or Friday? I think it was, I think it was Friday, actually. Yeah. I, you know what? I don't even remember. It was definitely the day after it came out, because I remember Nina was going to watch it the night before. Yes, yeah, so that would be a Friday, I think. Yeah. Because um, yeah, we just can't remember it all anymore. <laughs> much well, much like most of the film. Uh, <laughs> no, like there's nothing wrong with the film. It's unoffensive. Uh, it's absolutely unoffensive. It might be the most unoffensive film of all time. You could walk. Well, away- I don't know about that. Like, sure I feel be- like you walk away <laughs> from it being like that was a sequel mm. to Zombieland, and that's well, about- that, that's the thing because we saw it with Jack as well, and I think he put it really well. Was it just it fits if you watch it side if you watch the first one then you watch this one back to back. It fits, yeah. and I agree. the The style is cohesive, which I love. The you know all the all the tech stuff and the rules and all that stuff. Like it all transitions quite nicely from mm-hmm. the first one. But I agree with you. It's a very it's not a nothing film, but you're right. It's not. I don't know. I wouldn't 
recommend it to people, you know. No, I wouldn't either. I think yeah. if you like the first one, you're not going to have any problem with the second one. Yeah. That's, that's as simple as... That's all I can really add <laughs> to it. Um, I actually went and saw... And I know this is not a film, but this is a form of art. I did actually catch the Book of Mormon musical this oh, week. Okay. And I want to bring this up on the podcast because I am aware we are a film podcast. But um, there has been a lot of discussion as to if this musical should be made into a film. Okay. Um, this was obviously uh, plays into some of the stuff I've been watching this week. I've been watching a lot of South Park for the first time. Um, the first time? For the first time. Mm, um, interesting. They have released, I think, the last five seasons on Netflix. So I've been going through them. And, and they've, they've got, like, a best-of column as well. Absolutely, like season yeah. Season 3, Season 5, Season 7, that kind of thing. And, um, obviously, uh, The Book of Mormon, made by uh, Trey Parker mm. and, and what is that, Matt Stone? Is yeah, Matt Stone? that sounds right, yeah. Um, and, yeah, Jack and I have both seen it at different times, and we were discussing whether uh, we both would see this as a film. And I honestly think it would be a more enjoyable film than it would musical. I did enjoy the musical, but... Yeah, I'd be looking forward to seeing uh, well, a film version of this. Well, does it translate in terms of, I guess, comedic beats and whatnot? Yeah, I think it could. It would have to be a reinterpreted script, mm. but it definitely could work. The the It would be the most inappropriate cinema musical, I think, of all time, but it, it would be pretty <laughs> pretty funny to watch. I guess, like, yeah, musicals, especially, like, glamorous Hollywood ones, like, mm. most recently, La La Land, and you can go back to... You know, sound and music, singing in the rain. Like, they're very uh, polished and clean and colourful and fun. They're not really offensive. I mean, let, let's so, just yeah. take it, but it's not like these guys aren't capable of making a feature-length musical film. They've actually mm. done it with South Park. Yeah, yeah. And been nominated for an Oscar via it. <laughs> and then on top of that, That's I think awesome. their first feature film was a cannibal musical So that they did in the early 90s. I'm not aware of this. I will quickly fact-check it. But I'm aware, I'm pretty sure... That I mean, I'm sure it exists. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. not doubting that, but yeah. Yeah, no. Um, but, yeah, I managed to catch that during the week, and that was pretty interesting. Pretty um, sweet. I'll throw it back to you, Jake. What else have you... So I've watched a lot, and I feel I feel bad that a lot of these are going to end up... I'm sure we'll do full episodes on some Cannibal the, the Musical. Ah, there you go. 93 cult film by Trey Parker and Matt Stone. There you go. That's that's news to Budget me. Budget of 70,000 US. Yeah. In what, the 90s? 93. Yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I said, a lot of these, I think, weren't their own episodes, but I'm just going to listen through because it's what I've seen in the last week. A lot of stuff. Watch Raging Bull for the first time ever. Mm. Going on my Scorsese hunt down, if that you will. That was number... God, that'd be like number 20, I think, for me this year. When you... Oh, you only seen it for the first time this year too? Mm-hmm. I oh. didn't even know that. I'm going to have to go through your challenge again. And Well, what did you, what did you think of it? Uh, I honestly didn't think too much of it. Mm. Like, uh, I thought it was fine. I like the idea behind it, but was not like a resonating yeah. Scorsese film. I kind of, I honestly agree with you. I feel, I, I, because that's the thing, I see this kind of film and it actually didn't really get <clears throat> like horribly great reviews when it first came out. It was a bit more mixed actually. And then over time. Film as, 16, by the way. Oh, well, there you go. And that's. Films tend to do of that type. They gain the cult following, and now people regard it as one of the best films ever made. Which I don't necessarily see that about *Raging Bull*. It's like, yeah, it's a it's a good character piece. I still preferred *King of Comedy* or *Taxi Driver* over it. In fact, I preferred, and this is another film that I saw this mm-hmm. week as well, *The Aviator*. 
Also, Scorsese, and it's one of his earliest ones with Leo. I don't think I ever put Leo. the Aviator up, but I also did catch that for the first time this year. Really? Yeah. This is just, just blowing my mind. Yeah, I think I caught it <laughs> the first time, maybe like a month, six weeks ago. Did we talk about it on the show? I think it was a passing comment. It wasn't a huge... Com- I didn't think I was a big fan of it. Yeah, um, okay. Uh, I, I still kind of stand by that. Once again, another film that went too long, in my opinion. Wasn't super entertained by it. I was a little disappointed, but... Okay. Um, I'm not... It's one of those films that I didn't really see the reason for the biopic, I guess. Uh, like... I, it's in the same vein as like Steve Jobs, where mm-hmm. it's just the stuff that he did in his timelines were really impressive, but it's not, it's, uh, it's not grandiose. Yeah. The, the actual film itself, like it's not overly grandiose, which I guess I can actually respect. I mean, I actually really, really enjoyed the film, uh, in contrast to what, what you said. Mm. I don't know. I just really, I was like, oh, I didn't really know much about this. This guy is really interesting. I love how much they touch on his kind of germophobia that he has, basically, and mm-hmm. the extent they take that when he's, like, naked in this room and he's kind of put all these tissues everywhere. I, like, the, I, I don't know. I just really liked all that stuff, and I thought the pacing... It was a long film, but I thought it kind of chugged at a nice pace. Like, I was never checking my watch or anything like that. I was like, this is, this is quite fun. And Kate Blanchett was great in it. Leo's great in it. Yeah, I've never been a big Kate Blanchett fan, so... Um, yeah, that's fair. She's very uh, hit or miss with me. Okay. I can't think of anything off the top of my head that I like. I always see her as Gladriel. I think that's like, right, the, yeah. which is a pretty obviously obvious. Well, I, f- I think of her roles and stuff like Benjamin Button, and uh, she was in Fort Ragnarok. But I don't think most people think of her in that in that role. Mm. I don't know. She's just got this prestige to her, which I can appreciate because she's always cast right. I feel like in the stuff that I've seen of her in. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. In, in comparison, I did really enjoy the Aviator. But I agree, it wasn't it wasn't overly shot to be patriotic of that kind of thing. It was just, this is a guy and he's doing what he does. And yeah. that scene though, when he when he's I just remembered it now when he's uh, crashes and he is on fire and everything like that was like holy crap, this is awesome. I really like that scene. So another one I managed to catch. Mm. I just saw it just then. Okay, uh, it was a documentary that Jack actually mentioned on the show or. Maybe not the last time he was Ugh. on, but the time before, I think it was the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood episode, right. which he mentioned a documentary called Screwball. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which talks about injections on athletes, hormone injections, and he talked about the strange thing with the with the kid, like the weird sort of reenactments, but they're all kids. Um, okay. I, fi- okay, I, know so he, I know we talked about it. Let me set, it, let me set the pre- yeah. precedence again for you, Joe, right. just to refresh your uh, your mind on this. The good old noggin on that. Um, basically, it's about this guy who's into like hormone therapy, mm. and he's not really a doctor, but in Florida there's some loopholes that allows him to call himself a doctor without being a doctor. Okay. Um, and what he was doing is he was doing hormone injections into athletes, like baseball players, so they could perform better. Yep. So their muscles would develop more and they could hit. And in the sport of baseball, in this time period... Fight, you could hit, yeah? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, there were more home runs being scored than there had been for like 20, 30 years. Right. So it was um, a suspicious sort of thing that was going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But also the baseball kind of like negated it for a while because obviously mm. the sport became more entertaining. Yeah. Um, and it's that sort of relationship between like the... Basically, this whole scam slowly coming undone, mm. and slightly different way to like things like fire and how they presented the the 
the scam artist's development of an idea and and a industry and then it all slowly falling apart yep. with this reenactments being through kids. It is a strange idea. I can sort of see the mindset. They're like, oh, well, these people were kids once. Like, if we envision them as kids. Honestly, I'm trying to justify it here. I really couldn't tell you why they made kids reenact. Right, so the adults really would speak. Out. So it'd yeah. be like, I'm speaking as an adult. And then we'd cut back to the eight-year-old me doing my piece. I'm doing my piece to camera voice. Very similar to Tower and how... So they got the adult voice over the kids enactment? Yes. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah. So apparatus fury for you there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, yeah, they'd, they'd have him do the the, the voices, and yeah. then the kids reenacting. Sort of like in Tower, they get the old person to tell the story, and then they cut back to the younger voice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and and the that's all animated as well. Yes. Yeah. Um. It was okay. It was fine. Okay. Yeah. Sounds but, interesting though the premise and kind of the yeah, time period and stuff. Yeah. Wasn't like. Because, I don't know, fire does that thing where it's like, it takes a relatively, when you think about it, sort of silly contemporary idea, but makes it interesting because of just the way it's presented and just the pure obscurity of the idea and this belief of, like, confident, ignorant people doing right, stuff. Right, yeah. Uh, like, when you think about it, fire is basically, it's a it's a documentary about how this guy managed to convince everyone that he was going to have the biggest party in in the world, and people just latching onto that idea. But no one got really hurt. People got ripped off. Yeah, I suppose no, so. Like, no one got critically no hurt. No one physically got hurt or anything yeah. like that, at least from memory. They got stranded on the island for a few days. They were hungry, I guess. But that's yeah. the thing. It goes back. I think, the, does the film even address that? The fact that there's like a bunch of rich white kids who were showing up? And yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, it's been a while since I saw it. I've... I love that film to death. Yeah, but um, but yeah. it takes it takes the idea of this this guy just wanting to live like basically just wanting to feel like he was important and popular mm. and this big time player, but really he's just a big time scam artist. But yeah, I mean, like essentially the the moment when it that all builds to the drop, and when it drops, it's more just funny to see the disarray. But right. no one is getting like I said, no one's getting like like apart from their wallets being hurt a tiny bit. Like I think couple thousand dollars and stuff like right like it's still money but it's not like they weren't out of a home or none of them ended up dying or anything like that you know yeah. but it's well the doco definitely doesn't portray that exactly if it happens but the doco still makes is equally as entertaining mm. because of the way it's constructed and i feel like this one fire i found myself tuning out quite a bit because it okay. just felt like That's a shame it was being quirky, but it didn't really have any justification for why it's being quirky yeah. which i'm pretty sure jack commented on when he talked about the film right yeah, I want to. I want to. I would love to double check which episode he talked about that and compare the the, the feedback. But no, it's interesting. So another one I watched. Uh, this is one I would love to do some time. Yeah, some time in the future. I did Rosemary's Baby, and that was where I lost my Polanski virginity as opposed to losing my Kubrick yeah. virginity last week. And um, it's pretty darn good. It's interesting because this is 1968, about six years before The Exorcist, and you can definitely see the seedings of the horror genre. This really is the birth of the horror genre in a lot of ways, from at least from what I've seen. It's mm-hmm. very, very subtle. There's no jump scares or anything like that. A lot of the um, the creepy horror aspects really don't... They literally don't arrive until the final scene of the film. But the plot and everything that's going on is so engaging, which, I don't know, I just... I, I like and it. And obviously, all the horror themes around it with motherhood and pregnancy and all that stuff. I mean, you haven't you haven't seen it, have you? No, I have not. Um. Rosemary's Baby, though, is 68, correct? Yeah, 68. So, do you not think Psycho would be sort of the birth of horror? 
I suppose so. I mean, I haven't having not seen Psycho, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's tricky because I, I with this, I, I guess I'm talking more about not necessarily gross out horror, but just in terms of the horror conventions we have today of plotting, I suppose, more yeah. so than it, again, I haven't seen Psycho, which makes it a bit tricky. But from what I have seen of that, it's a bit more of a grounded. Here's a serial killer mm-hmm. doing their thing. I think I think the main difference here, again, I think it just it it starts feeding into what we consider the horror tropes. Like we saw the trailer for that Shining sequel, and it's just very generic looking horror. But yeah, that, that's yeah. what we just associate horror horror with now is this type of imagery and this type of plot line. You know. But you enjoyed the film. I really enjoyed it, and I think even though it's very subtle on that front, I think mm-hmm. it's very important to watch because yeah it really builds into that and it's a great great slow burn so so jack also addressed the other day uh to me um uh, a constant question that gets thrown around particularly with roman polanski given okay. the events of That's, what yeah okay yeah what, let's talk about that yeah what happens to roman polanski in in the real world and mm. the world obviously he was has done some pretty questionable horrible things mm. Uh, I mean, he's, he's very open out of the, about it. Very open about it. He's yeah. been kicked out of the US. It, well, where, you are, he wouldn't necessarily got kicked out, but he's he's a fugitive. He's an actual fugitive, and he went back to his homeland, I think, yeah. Poland. So yeah, that's where he's hiding essentially. Mm-hmm. So, with given the you know the public consensus and the context mm-hmm. surrounding him, where do we sit with films like Rosemary's Baby, which are right. Um, if I'm not wrong, were you know not only very successful, but I'm pretty sure Rosemary's Baby did well in the Oscars, right? Didn't it get uh, a, I don't, a nod? I think I think the I forget her name. I apologize, but the woman who played the neighbor, and she's great in the film. She got Best Supporting Actress. I think mm-hmm. that's the only Oscar it won. I think and it got even other well. films that he has done, like Chinatown and mm-hmm. um, The Pianist, yeah, which which is another one I saw this week as well. Actually, oh, it's funny. <laughs> well, I, I'll I'll get into the whole thing. I'll get into The Pianist in a second, but. To go on with that, I think to answer your question where we stand with that, I think for Rosemary's Baby, it happened, this happened and, and it was a huge success. I think it was one of the first films of its time to make the kind of money. It made like $33 million back on like a like a, a one or $2 million. Like it, it made a lot of money. It was huge at the time. And it's interesting going back to once putting them in Hollywood and seeing how they kind of deal with that there. And then obviously all the Sharon Tate stuff that happens. I think because this film was made before those acts that he did, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it, I don't know if it, it doesn't obviously justify anything, but I think there's a point where you've got to separate the artist from, from the art. And I think you, sometimes it's hard to do. And, you know, people were pointing out the, um, the rock and roll, uh, part two that's in the Joker film, yeah. how that track is done by someone who I believe is a pedophile or a convicted, something like that. And when I hear that song now, that's the first thing that goes to my mind. Now that I know that. While with Rosemary's Baby, I can watch the film and it do- I don't get distracted by the fact that the director is a fugitive at this point. I guess um, if you're really... And the, the funniest thing is you look mm. at like films like The Pianist, which he made in, I think, what, 2002? It came 2002, out in 2002 and it won Best Director at the Oscars. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> clearly, people like the Academy uh, are not going to extradite him from his art. As per se, right. Well, um, definitely not that time. Now, now might be a different story. The incident occurred in 1977. Yeah, um, so about nine years after the so, film released. So, well, which is where I'm going to mm. say that maybe films like Rosemary's Baby are open discussions because 
they came before the incident, I guess. It's that sort of BCAD situation, right, maybe. Right, right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, but if you refuse to talk about films because of what he did, you're you're essentially throwing out the work of all the the artists of the film, the actors in the film, the true. DOPs. It's There's true. a lot of people working on these films other than just this one dude, so I think that helps. That is, I think that's a very valid... That so point, you Jake. want to respect their work too. You, like, I want to respect Mia Farrow's excellent work in, in Rosemary's Baby. Absolutely. So it shouldn't be tainted. I want to respect Adrian Brody's yeah. work in The Pianist, which is awesome. And have you seen? You seen that? I have. That was my Year Twelve English film. Oh, you know, like, that's yeah. a good one. Yeah, it's interesting bringing it up because one of my notes is that I watching this, I was like, this is the first time I've watched a Holocaust film that's this brutal. Like I was like, wow, there's some brutal stuff in here. Not even just. Gore, from gore point Have of view. Have you seen but, Schindler's List? No. Okay. Because the type of high school films I watched on Holo- or Holocaust films that I watched in high school, like The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, that kind of stuff, or um, uh, is it A Beautiful Life? Or it's it's the one, and he won an Oscar for it too. It's where his son, it's him and his son in the. Uh, gosh, why am I blanking on this so much? But uh, that was more of a comedic take because you're, you're taking it from the perspective of a father who's trying to trick his kid into not realizing what the Holocaust actually is. Um, it's either, I think it's Life is Beautiful. I take that back. It's Life is Beautiful. Um, but that and Boy in Striped Pajamas, those Holocaust films have different perspectives. This is a good guess, Jake. It is Life is Beautiful. Thank you. Um, while, yeah, the pianist was like, whoa, I, I, okay, this is a bit more heavy and in your face with some of it than I remembered. So that was a nice, like, surprise for me watching it. I loved how raw it was, but... Um, and I also love that it, it talked a bit about what an artist's place is in, in society because we always, I think we deal with that a lot on a day-to-day basis. People mm. not taking maybe our art form very seriously, but a film like this does show what an artist can do in a situation like that, this. Uh, that play for me scene is very good. Mm. I, I I really enjoyed both of them. So I enjoyed Rosemary's Baby a little bit more, but no, that was my little Polanski kind of trip down if, if so to speak mm. but yeah um i've watched a few others do you want to bounce back to you or i think uh, i more just i really want to reaffirm that i think you've brought up a very valid point there about the whole uh filmmaking is not a single person right. yeah it is a, it is a huge team especially on this scale especially films like uh, the pianist which i think had a budget of upwards of least 100 million it would have been a big one yeah um, those shots are gorgeous and um i think to shun an entire piece of art particularly uh films because one person of the actions of one person mm. is is wrong or it's very wrong um and 121 million at gross at the box office and yeah, no, we're not condoning his actions. It's more the fact that you need to acknowledge that there are hundreds of people that work on these films. Mm. And just because he's an arsehole and a horrible person doesn't mean the other ninety nine point nine percent people uh, are the same. So yeah. no, uh, back to me. Um, I also managed to catch. Uh, I just got to quickly check. I managed to catch funny people. Um, oh, okay, I mean you've seen it before, yeah. Uh, I've seen parts of it. I haven't seen it in its entirety. It's two and a half hours. Yeah, it's a long one. Um, I forgot how long it was. And I got through part of it uh, with with Sarah and I had to go back and rewatch it and um yeah no I honestly I I enjoyed it okay. I didn't, I can't say I took too much away it's probably one of my favorite Sandler films I think I'm still 
pretty strong behind Fifty First Dates as my favourite Sandler film. I love film. Fifty First. I've seen it like a hundred times. That film. Yeah, exactly. We yeah, should do um, it. we should do it one week. We should. We should. Maybe on the Fifty First episode. Oh. Um, mm. No, I really like. I really like. I really like uh, Seth Rogen in it. Um, not my favourite Seth Rogen film. Probably not my favourite Adam Sandler film. Mm. But overall, yeah, it was a pretty solid, solid film. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I watched it quite young, so it's hard for me to analytically break it down. But mm. I remember, I remembered liking. It. I think, I think I was just into the idea. It was like my first time. I was like, oh, Adam Sandler in a depressing, sad role, and I think, I think that's kind of. He's not really me. that depressing. And yeah, sad. I mean, it's been. I was, I was young as shit when I saw it, so that was kind of what I was. It was, it was strangely. That disappointing on that front um i was honestly expecting it to be a little bit more uh depressing and sad i guess but wasn't no i feel yeah i guess yeah i guess they're trying to find the right balance Mm. so i watched yesterday the beatles movie yeah all right um how'd you go about watching this was this out on dvd now Uh, i rented a fan base for like a one night thing so yeah it's out on dvd now to blu-ray and whatnot um so i watched it through that on on my big TV because no one was home, so I was like, hey, I'm able to enjoy it with the speakers on and stuff, and I quite enjoyed it. I think I agree. Mm-hmm. With, I think the consensus is that it doesn't really take it too far. This interesting concept of waking up one day and all the Beatles music's missing. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. It could have taken it a bit further. I remember talking to Jack about because Jack's seen it, and I think he did talk about it on the podcast at one point. But he was saying he wanted to see this protagonist like basically become like a coke addict, and that's how far he wanted. And I'm like, I don't know if I necessarily needed that. I'm glad that it's still like a nice and colourful little indie film, uh, even though they spent ten million dollars just to get the rights to the music. <laughs> Nearly half their budget was insane, but really, yeah, no, I was it was. <laughs> see what you did there, mate. No, I I quite enjoyed it, but I agree. It, it yeah, and plus I wish the editor. Here's the thing about the way films are edited nowadays, especially films like this that are like kind of fun, quirky little indie films, is it feels like the editor's on crack half the time and that they feel like they just have to edit, 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 mm-hmm. edit the first act so that the film can, from a from a pacing standpoint, just slow down and relax and catch your breath by the second act because it needs to get all the exposition out. It needs to get into the story. And I just, it bothered me. It's it bothered going me. to uh, be the complete opposite with our film of the week later in the show. Mm, that's a good point. You know, I wish I wish it was more like, I wish, I wish filmmakers had the confidence to do that. And I guess, I guess it's not more confidence. It's probably a studio being like, I want to get to him waking up quicker sort of thing. Um, but I like the direction. I like the imposter syndrome stuff that they, they tap into. It was really weird though because the premise obviously him waking up, no Beatles. That's not the only thing that's disappeared. And so every now and every like 20 or 30 minutes in the film, there will be a random joke where he, the you know protagonist will mention something like, you know, Coca-Cola or Harry Potter. And someone will be like, oh, what was that? And it's like, oh, ha ha, Harry Potter doesn't exist as well. It's just mm. random. It's like, I don't know why. So there's multiple what, things in the yeah, world Yeah, it's just random disappear. little things. like Oh, cigarettes. Like, it was like, oh, what are cigarettes? And he, look, he Googles it and it, won't, it comes up with like a, a person who was named Cigarette or something like that. It's, I don't know. That seems Random strange to me, decisions. especially given the like the Beatles music and probably how much of that they were completely zonked on drugs. <laughs> and you're just like gonna get rid of cigarettes is a bit weird to me. Yeah, I, I don't know. I found that a bit of a weird decision. Anyway, so I watched two other films. Okay. Uh, I watched Ad Astra. So I was able Ooh. to catch that at the movies in the last week. Did you enjoy it? I quite enjoyed it. There are a few issues here and there. It's not Interstellar. Even though I'm pretty sure it was actually shot by the same dude who did Interstellar, um, but I did I did like the cinematography. It was a bit more experimental in, in some ways in terms of how they shoot this and that. 
Um, I, I think the the thematic aspects of it, in terms of you have you have the story with with Brad Pitt and his his father who he's trying to find in space, and then it's conjuncted with this physical threat danger that he has to fix for NASA and for basically the the, the solar system. And I feel like it's the way it juggled those themes was a little imbalanced. Okay. Like I just I don't know. It was a little like I don't know where I'm meant to be focusing on it, but that was that's a. Ultimately, it's not that it's a minor complaint, but like that's, it's not like a very distracting complaint. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, the story seems a bit uneven at times. But yeah, I I just really like yeah the look and the and there's lots of moments where the way reflections work on the on the helmet on the space helmet of Brad Pitt is really cool because it it almost adjusts the way it would be paced or edited. So instead of having cut to Brad Pitt, cut to door opens, cut back to him for reaction. They actually kind of do it all in the one shot because of the way reflections work, and they can. It's cool that they figured that all out on set and they adjusted the pace through that. Which I don't know. I I really liked it. I would I recommend it. Yeah, I'd say wait. Might as well at this point wait for the DVD. Yeah, I'll wait for the DVD or when it's on Netflix or something like that and give it a give yeah. it a cheeky watch. But it's, obviously it's cool on a big screen, but it's not like I don't know. I didn't get too much out of seeing shot it. in a black magic though. Yeah, well, it was it was funny because I was I was actually talking to Damien about that, and he says a lot of this was actually shot on film. Heartbreak. But uh, I think some of it, like maybe some pickup shots or some stuff on the on the Black Magic, which yeah, I was with you there. I was like, that's awesome. But I had my I had my soul crushed a little bit. Heartbreak. That's cool. Pure heartbreak. And I watched one other film that you're going to be proud that I finally caught. Hit me. Lost in Translation. Oh, baby, it just got put on Netflix. You yeah, see that's that? that's why I watched Woo-hoo! it. It kept coming up in my face. I was like, now's the time. Um. I thought it was alright. <gasps> I I might be in the it might be the wrong time in my life to watch a film like this. Cause I could see this film totally resonated with me a year or two ago. Or maybe a year from now. Okay. But I watched it at like twelve o'clock at night and I was just like, okay. Like Bill Murray's great. Um it was really cool to see a very, very young Sky Hansen. I was like, this is interesting. And of course her being the, the central figure in her, and of course those films complement each other so well. Um, that was really cool. It was cool to see how that's all. Yeah, put I mean, yeah. I think the only thing I ever I ever had a grievance with that film was the ending. I think. Um, see, that surprised me because I didn't mind the ending. I did. I felt like it was that the the beauty was the necessity of each other and the idea of loving each other, but the ending kind of takes away from it by fulfilling your expectation a little bit too much. I think if they had I, never yeah, okay, kissed. That's a good point. The idea of us wanting them to kiss is better than them actually doing it. I guess the reason I didn't mind is because the way you talked about it, it sounded like they just straight up, like, got together, which isn't necessarily what happens. Nope. They just have a bit more of, you're right, it's a bit more of an embraceful goodbye, uh, which I agree your point there. That I think I think we got a bit too, considering how the film plays out, maybe we mm-hmm. shouldn't have got as much satisfaction as we did from that. Yeah. So I can see what you mean by that, but I, I didn't mind it in the grand scope of things. I just I I thought it was a great love story. I love I love the backdrop, and the way they intertwine culture with that. I thought it was all very well done. Absolutely, it just didn't touch me in that way that her did, for example. It's a very strong showing mm. for uh, Sophia Coppola. Who yeah, we have. was that her? F- that wasn't the first one, was it? Third film. I gotcha, think it gotcha. Was. I think and we, we did Marie Antoinette earlier yes, in the show. If you yes, want to her watch first that. films. I th- I'm gonna get told off from this. I know. <laughs> I think it's Virgin Suicides. Yep, that sounds right. So I'm with Kirsten right Dunst, um, yeah. yeah, no, it's a 
it's a, I really enjoy that film. The only other film I caught this week, and I'm sorry to finish on such a sour note, <laughs> oh, but no. I hate myself, and I managed to watch two terrible films oh, in the boy. last week. I watched Hashtag Reality High and Swiped. One of those. I'm ne- glad you asked, ne- Jake. No, no, I shouldn't have so, asked. So, um, in case uh, the viewers at home don't know, I like mm. when I go out and I'm with my buddies. <laughs> to watch I love shit watch, movies. to watch shit movies <laughs> and play Drink to Cringe. And wait, when was this? Uh, this is this was uh, four. It's okay. I'm not. I'm glad I didn't get invited. <laughs> <laughs> Based on what you, you watched. Smash. Um, I watched one, I think, Wednesday and one Saturday. Oh, uh, okay. I thought you watched them like back to back. Um, and hashtag reality high is basically another one of those offensive love story high school films. Not got much to say about that one. Swiped was terrible. I don't understand how the hell that's on Netflix, man. Oh, it's on about, Netflix. It's about, they're both on Netflix. They're both about... Uh. This one, swiped about them create a... A, a geek and another and the dude who's in all of these terrible films they create a dating app and he goes on dates with girls and stuff and it's terrible I got about halfway <laughs> through both so I didn't actually watch the full film oh okay good because <laughs> um, they were at the point where they weren't funny bad they were just bad right and you, can, you just couldn't put up with it anymore yeah so it's depressing but yeah. anyway Jake we'll move into do you have anything to add in our career section of the show um, I do I should mention so uh, we put out a post this morning we are delaying x Rental, unfortunately another three weeks I talked to you about this last night Zeke you um, did and me, me and Keisha had to talk about it and we're like yeah let's push it a few more weeks just because my schedule's very hectic and I'm working on other stuff right now but just the final push we got less than two weeks left uh, in terms of like classes or the day to day for our, our entire course really so correct um, I guess I was would have put that final push in without worrying about delivering a half-assed project or our products in, cool. in next rental. Yeah, so yeah, it's I putting it out there. It's now fifteenth of November, which I think gives me plenty of time to polish up towards the start. Yeah, of and November. you'll be able to talk about that on the birthday Zeke's birthday edition of the podcast. Oh my god, you're right. That's exciting. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but we got plenty of other stuff. Um, like I said, I wouldn't have delayed it if it weren't for the fact that I knew it would make for a better product. And, you know, we know how it is. Um, and I should take the fact that I couldn't do it for Disconnected. If I needed, not to say I needed it, but if I did, it's like that would have cost a lot of money to back up on doing a premiere and everything. While in this case, it's like, oh, I do need to, to delay it. But it's it opportunity like, cost, you know. Yeah, exactly. And the fact of the matter is I'm, we're releasing it online for free. So it's like people... Obviously, patience will reward you, but it doesn't hurt us in the long run to delay it a few weeks and make it a better film. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. Um, do you have anything on your career? I have nothing to add right now, so I think it's time to move into our movie of the week. Oh. Jake, what are we watching? We're watching Once Upon a West in a Time. Or Once Upon a Time in the West. single piece of land around Flagstone with water on it, and Rail Baron Morton aims to have it, knowing the new railroad will have to stop there. He sends his henchman, Frank, to scare off the landowner, McBain, but Frank kills him instead and pins it on a known bandit, Cheyenne, 
Meanwhile, the mysterious gunslinger with a score to settle and McBain's new wife, Jill, arrive in town. This film was directed by Sergio Leone and is our director's corner this week. We're going retro, yo. I love how I obviously introduced this film incorrectly. You did. And you're just like, no, you can't disrespect my man like that. (laughs) No, you can't. Because this is like, possibly, I mean, I don't want to toot the director's horn here, Jake. Are you going to say toot your own horn? I'm like, what are you doing this film? But I think this might be one of the most talented directors of all time. It's interesting. It is interesting. So, unfortunately, I said it last week, unfortunately, watching all that other stuff, and it was very hard to find these other films, like, to rent on DVD and stuff. So, I only ended up watching this film. Uh, mm-hmm. So, in terms of a director's corner, this is the only film of his I've seen. I'm sure you've seen more. I have. So I have seen all three of the Strangers trilogies now. Nice. So, I've seen, which is the Clint Eastwood one, uh, the three films that involve Clint Eastwood, which is Fistful of Dollars, Few Dollars More, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Nice. And, yeah, like, all three of them are pretty much just as long as this film, and all of them are entertaining for their own respected uh, moments. I think The Good, The Bad, The Ugly is probably the most widely regarded film of his. Mm, probably, um, yeah. He did have a very, very early death. I mean, relatively early. Oh, he was 60s, six, yeah? He was 60. Yeah, okay. Uh, 1982, I want to say. 82, 88. Something like that. that. Um, And yeah, so he he died relatively young. uh, 1989, actually. Um, Oh, okay. But at the age of 60. Oh, yeah, I've got it here. So relatively uh, young. So he definitely still had uh, time to make films Mm. only at the age of 60 if his life wasn't so tragically cut short. Um, but these, those four films are definitely the four films that are talked about the most from him. Mm. The Stranger Trilogy and this film. And I think this is my favourite of the three, of four. I, I can see where you come from that. So like I said, I, first time I watched it, and we watched it together last night, we actually went to your place, dimmed the lights down, had mm. some beers, and uh, we watched the, the extended, I'm guessing it's the extended cut, because we had two versions on yes. the Blu-ray. Um, and this film is notorious for having been cut by a lot of producers in, in different ways. So I'm guessing we watched the full version because it was nearly three hours long. Well, apparently it rakes in at two hours and 55 minutes. That's, yeah, sounds about right. So um, it doesn't feel like two hours and 55 mm. minutes. It goes relatively yes, quick. Yes, Bob. Um, I think we had one pause, like one or two pauses throughout it, and it was like... We, we had to pee. <laughs> yeah, meant to be. Um, and I think the first time we paused it, you were like, holy crap, it's already been an hour? Like, Yeah, yeah, no, we raced through that. Um, yeah, no, I... So, yeah, having gone through that experience, pretty ideal way to watch a film, in my in my humble opinion. I think this may be one of the best films ever made. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, like, having seen it now and knowing a lot of the... Uh, not a lot of the history about it, but knowing the reputation that this film holds and as well as the director... I knew I should have been, you know, was in for something as an experience, and mm-hmm. I think I definitely got it in that regard. I think it is, I, I wouldn't say it's one of my personal favourite films, but it's one of the best well-crafted films I've ever seen in terms of a cinematic point of view, from a sound point of view, and even just characters. I think it's just incredibly well Would you put like together. to know what the budget of the film was? Please tell me, Zeke boy. It was $5 million. Mm. So, pretty big for the time, but yeah, when you definitely. think, <laughs> you look at the film, and, I mean, the set dressing in this film is, is incredible. It's, it's, 
if awesome you get, yeah, if you get breath- a five million dollar film now, it's not going to look like this. It's going to no. look way worse than this. And I'm I am aware that obviously that like you adjust for inflation, but mm. bear this in mind: this film was made in 1968, um, same year as Murray's Murray's Baby. Yep, and, and Planet of the Apes the original. Yeah, and I mean, if we like look up things like uh, Star Wars, I think it was twelve million ten years later. Mm. So, and I know a totally different genre, but. I mean, it's it's pretty crazy to see Probably how equally far. as ambitious as well. Oh, I reckon so. so. I mean, it's it's interesting to search. I mean, for instance, the Jaws budget was seven million. Mm. Two million That's more than this. Now, think about. <laughs> now, I love Jaws. I do. But if you watch Jaws and you watch this film, generally we are taught that period is, you know, essentially right. uh, much harder to do. And Jaws, for the most part, due to obviously the mechanical shark not working, um, we barely see the shark the whole film. Mm. So, it's, still, it's still an ambitious thing. I can see why they had that budget at the time. Yeah. It's just interesting to bear in mind. Yeah. No, but, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, this film's incredible. I think the the only thing is, as I was watching it for the first time, and I forgot the log line that we, we just read out, and I was... I was trying to catch up with the film a lot of the time sort of in terms of who was who. Uh, but I know that was like a me thing. I'm not going to blame the film for that. Yeah. Because I know the, what the film is doing is very well thought out. So I can understand that, you know, I, I me having to catch up with the film is not a fault of the film. No. So This film, and it's yeah. it's an odyssey. It's a, it's mm. three hours, but it's one of the few films that warrants three hours. It Everything in the film needs to be in there. There is not a single piece of fat on this film mm. is lean it's as lean as it can be this is what i said to you we're watching yeah. it we'll talk probably getting towards the end and i said i'm like it's crazy because yeah the film's nearly three hours and i was like it's impeccably paced it's mm. not that it's well paced it's impeccably paced and mm. we can talk about i feel we would talk about the the opening scene mm. for a good chunk of this episode because it's a masterpiece yeah i personally am a fan of the, the latter scene mm. the final scene over the the former, which is the the introduction, but that's totally we'll talk about both. Yeah, ends we'll of absolutely it. talk about both. I love you made a comment very early on in this film. I think it was the it was the first five or ten minutes that so you said that the Breaking Bad new directors had to watch either the right, right. first fifteen or the last fifteen minutes of this film. So this is something I heard years ago: is that when they would have guest directors on for Breaking Bad or someone would like join the show. Um, it would Vince Gilligan would make a point of showing them the first fifteen minutes of this film as as just inspiration. This is this is required viewing before you do anything on this show. And you can totally see it. You yeah, can see absolutely. after you said that, it's like holy shit, I totally can see it in Breaking Bad. Because <laughs> Breaking Bad does that thing where it just builds where it feels like it's like I think I talked about it literally last week on El Camino. Yeah, did El Camino last week. How episodes would start I, I, off the top of my head. I can just think of the first scene at the start of season two, where it's yeah, it's yeah. black and white. It, there's we really don't know what's going on for we some have reason. Like a we pool, watch there's a teddy bear, there's like a hose eye, running, and an eyeball, yeah. like there's smoke a of, in the air, that kind of thing. And all it makes you want to do is go, "What the fuck led to this point?" Because mm. the last time we saw in Breaking Bad, our characters they were standing in a Junkyard. Yeah, junkyard. Uh, just after their first deal with Tuco. So you know, it's a really interesting way of leading uh, a cast into a season. And this one is the same. We are introduced to three characters. 
None of them have any names. Mm. Um, all are very distinct in their visual personalities. One is uh, of African-American descent. Mm. One is quite a, a classic-looking rough ruffian. And then one of them is a hillbilly-looking yep. man. And each of them have distinct characteristics that us as the audience could automatically assume that maybe they might be our three characters for this film. Well, that's totally what I... The, you know, him with the fly and, like, mm-hmm. that whole thing. You're right. You're used to this kind of build-up being, well, this is clearly who we're going to follow for the, the yeah. story. Or, if we're not going to follow them, who are they waiting for? Because mm. they're waiting for someone. And we stick with them, I think, for the first... Was it, it is the first 15 minutes of the film. It must be, yeah, 10, 15 minutes, something like that. Um, I didn't, we didn't time-code it because it was just... Yeah, we, I was we're just watching, watching it, you. man. We're watching it, yeah. And big pointing, big points in this film. Not only is the cinematography phenomenal, the sound design is also impeccable. It might be my favorite like film soundtrack Absolutely. of all time that I've ever heard. It's in insane, my life. yeah. It's insanely good. And a quick note: I mean, in the first fifteen minutes, there is no non-diegetic sound. There is no mm. Western score. It is everything in the world is making the sounds. It's foley. It's, it's essentially yeah. all foley. Yeah. And ambiences. Yeah. Yeah. And even when we're introduced to the lone gunslinger, who is played by... I've got to quickly fact check this one. But, but it's diegetic music. It is. He is playing a harmonica. That's the character's name, isn't it? Does he get another name other than harmonica? Uh, I don't believe so. I think he is literally just referred to as harmonica. I mean, it makes I sense. Have to fact check that one. It's almost how... And I only say this because I've read a lot of Breaking Bad scripts. It's almost how they name their characters. Is they don't get a name until they get a name. So they'll have some sort of quirk like harmonica. And I'm sure it's not the first time it's been done, but I mm. kind of just... It's a nice he is quirk. Re- he is harmonica. Yep. There you so go. So there we go. Um, yeah. And that is his first introduction. And um, we can talk... We'll talk about the soundtrack until the cows come home. But <laughs> um, yeah. And then we're introduced to what is considered the protagonist of the film, but as yeah. I'll talk about later on, and I brought this up when we yeah, were watching the film. Yeah, you brought up film, some interesting points in that um, regard. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because we're introduced to him. Uh, and may I say, in the first 15 minutes, there might be collectively less than 100 words spoken. Has to be. Yeah. Maybe even less than 50. There's next to no lines spoken between any of the three characters we're introduced to and Harmonica. But every line is some of the most badass lines on the planet. <laughs> what does he say? He's just like, you didn't bring me a horse. And he's like, well, you won't be needing one. He's oh, like, no, you bought two too many. Yeah, yeah. Something about having three horses, you're one short. And he's like, no, you're two over. Something like that. So good. Uh, just And yeah, the whole film is littered with... with just amazing lines. lines like that. It's like, and badass awesome. moments where every character comes out looking cool at every, one point or another. I, <laughs> we should talk about the intros because every character gets a sick intro literally every two minutes in this film. Literally until yeah. the last Particularly act. Harmonica. It's like his like, <laughs> signature is making a good entrance. Well, I remember the scene when he's introduced with the, with the lamp. It's thrown in his direction and that's his mm. reveal um, when he's not much later in the film. I think that's the second time he's revealed in the film. Yeah. Um, I have seen that scene prior. I remember actually getting shown that in some sort of lecture well, class. That's Cheyenne's introduction to him. Mm, yeah. And their relationship is established. And that's also not five minutes earlier is the first time we actually get introduced to Cheyenne mm. as three of our four main characters are in the bar at this point with Jill being also there. Yeah. This film is very interesting though, Jake, because after we get introduced to Harmonica, we're actually introduced to uh, Brett McBain who's played by Frank Wolf, 
and who is the who is the father who we is out duck hunting with one of his sons and is going back to some sort of party being prepared and we don't really know who this character is but obviously we're given enough time with him to establish he has a family he might be essential to the plot obviously us as the audience our perception is we're 20 minutes into this film, we've been introduced to the protagonist, who's this other guy, what's his importance. He talks to his daughter about being rich. We don't really know why at this point. Mm. There's a dynamic. There's a family dynamic Mm -hmm. we're we're experiencing here. You're right. Yes. And there is an amazing little... This film is a a collection of almost short films Mm. or some prime examples, like, littered with cause and effect sort of situations. We see... Our introduction to Frank and his family is him duck hunting. We see the birds flying off. I think they're ducks or birds. They're some sort of quail or something. Um, I'm not yeah, sure what like type of bird it is. Pigeons but or something. I don't know. Yeah, and we see them flying, him shooting them. Yep. And there's a moment when he leaves his daughter for a second. We hear a gunshot. We see the birds flying, but none of the birds have been shot. Mm. And he turns around to see his daughter's yeah, been camera. shot. Is it a pan or a cut? I, even, I think I it's a, cu- a cut, a POV yeah, yeah. cut. Brilliant, though. Oh, it's, it's yeah, it's fantastic. It's exactly like what Leone's done there is he's done the cause and effect. He's shown what we th- like what we think is happening in the scene and then what actually happens in the scene, which then leads to our introduction of Frank, mm. who... For the most part, is perceived as the antagonist of the film, um, and also it's another- a little confusing, doesn't it? At times, <laughs> a lot of this does get really confusing, and I want to address that before we keep going, Jake. Um, well, before, yeah, before we move on, though, yeah. I quickly want to go on to your point about the birds. That that is a prime example of why this film is my favorite soundtrack of all time. Mm-hmm. Is because not only is the sound really great and impactful, and it's great foley work, but the sound directs the story so many times. Absolutely, Like, that sound makes that scene because of the way we associate it with the shot that we're doing. And yeah. it goes back to what you said. Narratively, that's why we're surprised. That's why it's a shocking moment, because we're expecting, mm. you know, the thing on camera to be shot. That's what we're expecting the reaction to come on. But it actually, no, it literally turns the story and, boom, new direction. This is where the film is now. And I, I want to also address the fact that um, the only times that non-diegetic sounds are used are to basically motif the three, particularly the three mm. central male characters. Yeah, they've all got their little own cues, uh, if you will. Cheyenne, Harmonica, and Frank all have their own uh, motif soundtracks that address when they are entering a scene or they are acting out or it's they're very much controlled by them. Mm. Um and with occasional crossovers, which we'll touch on a little bit later, because there's a very important <laughs> You're excited for cross- this. Oh, yeah. Um, but, no, yeah, I mean, this is the intro. Like, I want to talk about how all four of the main characters, you know, Jill McBain, Harmonica Frank, and Cheyenne, all, at one point or another, do something that kind of tilts them away from their, their character stereotype. Right. I guess. Because... Um, I mean, for the most part, uh, like, we perceive Harmonica as the good guy, but some of the actions he does, particularly towards Jill, mm. could be perceived a little confusing and a little grey. There's, there's, it's not necessarily black and white. It's four different shades of grey, because each character is essentially just trying to survive and serve their own selfish need, mm. in the which is very much a metaphor for how people worked in the frontier in the West. It wasn't necessarily a case of good versus evil. 
It was more a case of survival, hope, and building foundations for society and who would be the leaders in that society or what way of life best suits each character. I think because you said not as well elegantly as that, but you made that point when we were watching it. Yes. And I think the film, it all, I was already engrossed by everything that was happening, but I think the mm-hmm. film really clicked for me when you, when you pointed that out. It's mm-hmm. like, this isn't an overly cleverly way of weaving these characters in. These are literally just characters with their own goals. Mm-hmm. And now we've, it, it's almost like, you know, if we look at narrative as if God playing with his tools and creating this perfect thing, it's almost like this case of him just putting all the chips on the deck and just being like, yep, okay, now they're going to take care of themselves. It's society. It's essentially how society works. Like, each character. So, Harmonica is fueled by revenge, as um, revenge to find this character, Frank. Mm. And he doesn't care really about anything else, and everything he does is to serve so he can essentially get to Frank. Mm. And he personally alone can get to Frank. Is this why he named Frank Reynolds in Face in the Crowd? No. No? No, but... The way you're talking about Franklin, it just gave me that, like, oh, is that where it came from? So, no. But I guess not. No. Um, but, um, yeah, and it's like, for Frank, he's a man who's definitely a gun... He's an assassin, a gunslinger. Mm. His entire life was fueled by money and violence through, like, monetary incentive. Yeah. And he's trying to evolve as a character. He's trying to slot himself into Morton, who is a sickly man who suffers from, I believe it's tuberculosis. Right. Um, who's very sickly, dying. It's a bad one. <laughs> and he's a, a millionaire businessman. Mm. And F- Frank's trying to line up his position after. But as Morton constantly reminds him, he's not that type of person. He won't be able to be a businessman. He won't be able to grow with the changing world and the di- the death of the West. He will essentially die with the West. Much like... Whereas Cheyenne's character, mm. which is also fueled by this sort of uh, old old Western frontier style, is shifting more towards the self-centred hope and growing with the world. But he knows that that world is not necessarily for him. It's for the people around him that are building it. And he is accept- it's more his acceptance that he's definitely a part of the old world and he needs to move on from that. And that's that. And and Jill is essentially someone who's basically the 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 assumption of the the new frontier. She's just trying mm-hmm. to make her way in the world. She was a prostitute in the new or like in New Orleans, uh, yep. who married uh, you know Brett McBain out of essentially hope that she would have a better life than being a prostitute. Yeah, that just that whole arc. It actually surprised me until it just settled in. Mm-hmm. With the idea, because you're right, you start this narrative with her. Her whole family is killed. Yeah, and it, it at first for me it was a bit of a like, oh, okay, she's very not happily, but very calmly transitioning to a new relationship. But then as I got towards the end of the film, I was like, this does feel like an odyssey. You bring it up, mm-hmm. and it's like it just makes sense. She's a survivor, and that's yeah. what she would do, all and that's what all of these characters are doing. Yeah, they're all trying to survive, make their way through the world, and fulfill their own needs. Mm. Her need was to be self-sustainable and wealthy, and due to the actions of all the other characters in the film, she will go on and be successful. Because yeah. that town, that will that station, that is going to run through with the train's going to run through now, is going to be her station, yeah. and she's going to be the owner of that, and she's going to finish off, you know, being a millionaire because of it. So it's it's really interesting because that's obviously. Where the plot unfolds, we discover that uh, 
Brett was a bit of an innovator. He knew the train was going to eventually make its way to this plot of land that was mm. nothing. And by um, owning this land, he is going to be very wealthy because the railroad will have to pay to go through him. And by doing that, he, him and his family were going to start a new life. Of course, the railroad doesn't want this. They want to get it for dirt cheap. And then that leads to the interesting dynamic because Cheyenne is motivated by money at first, but obviously we'll never see the money through. Harmonica is motivated by the revenge for Frank, so by getting what essentially what Cheyenne and, and Jill want, he gets what he wants. So it's all self-service. And I've always found that very interesting that there's no clear-cut protagonist-antagonist. There are shades of grey on each side because, I mean, essentially, like, there's this strange sort of dynamic even between Jill and Frank who end up spending the night together. And as we talked about in the scene, it seemed did, consensual. Yeah, yeah that, was a, that was an odd one. I've done a bit of reading that, that there is sort of a history of um, Leon having rape scenes in his films. Um, and I don't know if I'm necessarily... Because cons- you're right. It's First off, it, there's a layer of trickiness for us dissecting a scene like that where is it consensual sex or not? And um, I think part of the conversation is tricky to have because we're both you know two guys. Mm-hmm. So it's a little harder for us to definitively give an answer on that. But you're right. It's very weirdly... I think it comes yeah. back to the shades of grey yeah, and yeah. survival. And she... At that point, and this is where it really narrows home her occupation, mm. and sort of makes the the like at least interwoven into this plot, the idea of she doing that consensually makes more sense because if she is a prostitute, she's obviously used to having sex for money. Yeah. So that sort of is her using her tools that she has at her disposal to her benefit, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's using the. Yeah, you're right. It's the tools that you have. Survive. That's her skill set, almost. Yeah, exactly. And there almost feels like everyone in this film is always trying to assert power and dominance over one another. It's a huge part of this film. Mm. Um, whether it's be to uh, Cheyenne going back and forth with Harmonica in their first scene, right? Yeah. Frank and Harmonica. Well, it goes back to one scene as well where I remember you saying when we watched it, you said, "I don't know why this scene's in here," and it is. It is along the lines of 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 Jill being asserted over or dominated where part of her like outfit is ripped off and now she has cleavage for the rest of the film. Yeah. And you made that joke of, oh, we needed to have cleavage now. It's the only reason the scene exists. But my defense was the only way I can see it is if you're right, if it's a case of a character well, asserting dominance tapping, over another character. Tapping into the frontier brings out primordial instinct and primordial mm. assertion. It was the only way to survive in the West is sort of what... I can interpret from right. all of those scenes. I think it's probably a case of both. I'm sure it's that, but it is also she needs to have cleavage for the rest of the film. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a great article. I haven't read it in full. It's from bfi.org. So I guess it's some sort of UK website. But it's an it's an article, and it's in defense of her character in Once Upon a Time in the West. Mm. And I thought it was an interesting article because I found her to be shockingly strong in her own way for this kind of film. Well, she's very much a woman in a man's world trying to make her, like, use what she, use her abilities to best survive in a world that mm. is, for the most part, dominated by men. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that they treat her as such, mm-hmm. you know, and that... I mean, I'm looking at the is. casting list right now. Right. She gets top billing. Yeah, she does. And 
I've got it up too. And legitimately, what, the next... Everyone else on the page is a man. There you go. So, that is <laughs> summing it up right there. But no, I, I, I kind of love that, and that's something I noticed in the film, and then I found that article. So go check it out, because I think, I think the idea is that a lot of people have criticised the role since... But this this article was obviously someone coming out in defense of her, and I am also in defense of her. I think that she's got a great role in this film. She's a great character. Mm-hmm. To go on, because we're talking a lot about um, plot and characters and how they all interweave, and it's very smartly done. I think this commentates on the fact that Leon didn't really want to make this film at first, that he was actually done with Westerns until I... I'm trying to remember the studio now. I guess it would be Paramount. Paramount wanted to give him a lot of money to make a Western in the in America. And this is his first American film, and I think that's really ultimately the reason he did it, is because he just got offered a lot of money to do it. So that's kind of shocking, considering how damn good this film oh, is. Oh, yeah. Probably but, hallmarked his best one, I reckon. Yeah, I mean, it's probably... I mean, you make a good point, the good, the bad, the ugly is probably mm. up there as well. But this is definitely one of the most well-known This one needs films. to be watched more, I think, because I like the it's good, incredible. the bad, the ugly, but this one is just... It's, it's on another plane of existence it's amazing i was from the first like yeah like five minutes i was like this is just incredible Mm -hmm. um we might as well talk about his directing style this is a director's corner absolutely um and that was my main takeaway is the way it was paced and edited and you're right we talk about how that was inspiration for breaking bad directors the way they introduce things into the scene how they toy with the audience's sense of excuse me tension and I'd like to get into that. So the one of the literally one of the very first things it says on his uh, Wikipedia page. Yes, we're using Wikipedia as our as our go to. Is that he's known for very intense close ups juxtaposed with giant landscape wide shots. And if you weren't happy with Wikipedia, I've got a review already done by Jeffrey M. Anderson Whoa. by Common Sense Media. This epic western with its wide spaces, striking close ups, and extraordinary music is considered to be many. Sergio Leone's best movie, one of the greatest westerns of all time. Damn, son. So, um, if you we weren't happy with Wikipedia, he's just got upping a, me up in this. <laughs> but exactly, no. I mean, that touches on the three strongest points. That juxtaposition between, and I, I even brought this up when I was we were watching it. Yep. That real use of a long lens for extreme close-ups to oh, get that yeah, huge yeah. disparity between the foreground and the background works perfectly and is iconic to. Any sort of uh, standoff now yeah. in Western shooting, um, and if it, if you don't have that huge depth of field, it just doesn't look the same mm. yeah, because of what this man did for that genre. Um, uh, I know for a fact. I mean, like uh, we watch any sort. Of, if I watch any sort of student Western film or anything like that, they do this. Mm. They use that long lens to get that disparity between the background. Well, because, it's just so influential. Yeah, it's the normal. And then he uses, and you juxtapose that with the huge wides to grasp the uh, the landscape. It's insane. And I mean, I, we even pointed out halfway through how many crane and dolly shots are in this film. Mm, like a lot of them, beautiful. And <laughs> they, they just go, had the crane. Like, just use it for everything. But they look amazing. Yeah. Is that why you think they had so many crane shots and ones to put them in Hollywood? Absolutely. This film, uh, even up to the bit where. What you say, DiCaprio goes to Italy to make spaghetti westerns? Yeah, I I want to watch that film again just because of that connection that I didn't make as clearly this time. That it was so specifically Leone that they're referring to with that yeah. arc that Leonardo DiCaprio Absolutely. has in that film. Um, so no, definitely, I, I think the the shots he uses, um, 
particularly in the latter scene, which I want to touch on more in my highlight scene discussion. But mm. um, yeah, I think I, I think we both know what our our highlight oh, scene yeah. is going to be. It's it's that's going to be interesting. It's yeah. a huge discussion that one. Um, yeah, I love his style. I love his. Um, use of he's very much a visual storyteller so i can oh, see why absolutely. a lot of dops draw influence from him and and want to talk about him because he's way more sometimes his dialogue admittedly can be probably if there was a weak point with him it might be his dialogue i don't think it's too bad at would that all. be a translation thing though yeah i'd say so i believe he actually had translators on this film yeah. A certain dialogue. So I, think, uh, me. I mean, if we're I mean, picking I do at like one, the dialogue. I don't think it's bad at all. Yeah. None of it's very clunky. In fact, there's actually some really nice subtle dialogue, particularly a scene with um, Cheyenne towards the end of the film where he's talking to Jill and he's talking about how much uh, a beautiful, attractive woman like her going out and f- giving water to the workers will mm. motivate them to build a better future for her. And she goes on to do it in in the latter parts of the film, and it's funny because it comes across uh, at first when you hear that line, you think, oh, it's a little sexist, but um, I think in the context of the film, it actually works quite well because it's, what it is is it's a case of simply her using her influence, her visual and mm. physical influence, to inspire change for her own betterment too, and uh, you know. Because essentially everyone is building that station for her now because yeah. all her family is gone. That's what I love about it is that she has a lot of power. She actually has... You're right. She uses all these things. I mean, we got to think she goes... At the start of this film, and I, I'm really glad you brought up that article, mm. she goes from being a, a prostitute from New Orleans, traveling yeah. to a place she has no clue to essentially being eventually the mayor of a of a town, a station. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a if that's, that's not that's building, right there. if that's not building in America, like <laughs> I don't know what is, man. Like, man. what else? Could, what else could she do? She actually ends up winning the most out of all of this. I mean, yeah. not to go too much into spoiler territory, but two out of three of the men die. Yeah, she's one of the only ones who don't die in the whole film. You know, it's. <laughs> And the other one... Spoiler alert, you're funny. Yeah. It's like 51 years old. <laughs> you believe this film's 51 years old? It's crazy. And how beautiful was it? Like, it's... a Blu-ray remaster of this. Oh, it's so cool. Apparently, there's a 4K version of it out there. You can buy it on 4K. It's unbelievable. It is gorgeous film. And that's that's the funny thing, is I brag about the soundtrack, but the visuals are just as good. But you it's know? like... It, it just... Like, I know often films are like Hallmark, they're like, they're timeless. This film is timeless. I reckon, in a hundred, like, yeah. we get to the 100th year anniversary of this film, you will still be able to watch it, and you'll be like, what the fuck? This is amazing. <laughs> like, I, I love f- films from the 40s, mm. but because of the 40s, there were limitations with visual... The, the actual visual fidelity yeah, of the image they could get. the cameras were so clunky and big. Yeah. Even films from, like, Orson Welles and such, sometimes they struggle because of how boxy they have to be. They have to be locked to a location. This camera, it floats, it moves. At some point, I'm going like, yeah. how is this film 51 years old? Legitimately, there are shots yeah. where it's like, it, it feels we like it's talk- on a gimbal. Yeah. Moving we, through. We talked about the shot when she's she her head, uh, Jill's head, like loads back in the bed, and then it does this tilt and pull out. Yeah. And you said, what the hell? How did they do that? Yeah. 
You think by now we would know all the tricks and trades, but the film is so ahead of its time in that way. Exactly. And that's why this film is going to go down in history as one of the most timeless films of all time. You will be able to watch this. I will be able to watch this film as a 70-year-old man Mm. and still think it looks as cinematic as a film that's made this year. So It all goes back again to, you know, excuse me, if you have, as a director, if you have the brain on you, if you have the capability, it doesn't matter what physical limitations you would have, you can make something amazing. Well, touching on to a thing we talked about earlier in the show, if you have an amazing team behind you, mm. <laughs> look what you can make. Yeah, it's incredible. And again, it goes back to, it's a very long film as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, not, like, I, like we said, none of it feels out of place or anything. The pacing is like amazing. Absolutely. But the fact that they can do all of this, all this incredible cinematography jazz, and and that's how big the film is. I know, I know the industry... I still guess it is in a, in a case, but, you know, you go back to that time where making films wasn't... In, it's like shooting films was an endeavour. And I remember going to The Exorcist, which was only a few years after that. The shooting schedule they had on that was just... They just did whatever they felt like. I think they spent a year shooting that film because they were just like, yep, we're going to show up and what are we shooting today? Right, we're just going to do this. They weren't as, like, tightly planned because they didn't have to be. And I think this film benefits from that too. So, uh, you're going to love this, Jack, man. Okay. So... Um, I just checked up the cinematographer for this film, uh, Tonino Del Colli. Okay. Um, passed away in 2005, but was also the cinematographer on Life is Beautiful. Oh my God. So... There's a circle and a half right there. Yeah. Uh, also Once Upon a Time in America, which was another yep. film done by, uh, Leone. Was that his last film? It was. Yeah. So, he did work with, um... Uh, Leone until yep. his death, but I just think that that's a pretty cool circle to have. That's a- pretty dope. I like that. We're just talking and about that. Dude, dude, literally has 145 cinematographer credits, so Woo-hoo! he racked them up. Um, a big other one that we have to touch on, obviously, we've talked about the music to death. The music's incredible, yeah. Um, and it's actually it's funny when you actually go on the like you Google this film. The only other credit other than Leone. That's on like the main like little letterbox. Yep. Is the music is composed by Aninio Aninio Maracconi, I'm gonna say. Sorry, it's I'm not Italian. Um, but <laughs> shockingly, y- neither of them. Just breathtaking. This soundtrack is breathtaking. And I always talk about Jerry Goldsmith, who came out, who was the mm. Planet of the Apes composer, who also did the Alien soundtrack. And I've always loved Goldsmith stuff, but this man also uh, insane. And believe it or not, was also the composer for the Hateful Eight. Oh, look at so, that! I love the Hateful Eight soundtrack. I love the Hateful Eight soundtrack too. I think the Hateful Eight's probably. I think I've talked about it. It's like, if not my second is, favorite or my favorite Tarantino, it's up there. Is that their only Tarantino credit musically? Uh, yeah. So that's the only one he did. Fair play. Um, Fair play. He also did the Untouchables, which was another big film from him, um, which is in the eighties, but. Yeah, no, amazing composer. So, dude must have been... When he did The Hateful Eight, he must be like, holy camoly, he's like... Uh, he is 89 or 91 this oh, year. Oh, my goodness. Lordy. Still working? Well, he was working in 2015, so he's like 80, what, 87, 88 at that point. Damn, it's like Eastwood. Yeah. Time back to that. But I was kind of a little surprised he wasn't in this film, Eastwood. Yeah, yeah, I it's, think yeah. maybe... Because of his 
He had three films, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I kind of liked that this cast was pretty fresh. Henry yeah, Fonda fresh. is phenomenal and, in it. And they made a point of uh, not typecasting, so Henry Fonda plays a villain almost. I mean, this, obviously we're talking about the flexibility of hero and villain here, but that I, I imagine that was a big deal at the time, is, oh, wow, he's cast as a non-hero or an yeah, anti-hero. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so do you want to go into highlight scenes? I'm ready to do that. So, well, highlight scene... Well, Okay, there's multiple scenes in this film that are amazing, but... The scene that needs to be talked about and needs to be hallmarked as in the top ten, mm. if not top five best sequences in a film of all time, <laughs> fight me, um, is the finale <laughs> and the final duel. And I've talked about this scene off this show quite a bit. I think it it by itself, it goes for, I think, a, 11 minutes. Um well, you've and, made a point of showing this scene to people just off, off-candid, off essentially. Yeah, I have. <laughs> uh, and it's a short film in its own right. It yep. has everything in it with one line of di- one or two lines of dialogue. And legitimately, it, it it's amazing. It's uh, It does everything a short film needs to do without saying a single thing. It tells you why, finally, harmonica... And I'd like to say that there is a scene that Harmonica keeps seeing these visions, and it's a blurry vision of a man walking towards what we oh, think it's is like Harmonica. It's like the Hounds of Love shot sort of thing. It is the Hounds of Love shot, only 50 years earlier. <laughs> um, and at first, um, despite the fact we both were very immature and made a joke about it not being in focus. Uh, oh, yeah. Focus! Yeah, but there's a man a approaching, moron. and as we discover, this is a younger version of Henry Fonda, say, maybe 20 years early, maybe 15 years. And there's no exact time, but it is a younger version. And as we discover, the harmonica is comes from Henry Fonda and is given to a boy version of the character known as Harmonica, mm. who has his older brother resting on his shoulders with a noose around his neck and has that to play... That iconography is incredible as well, that... Oh, when it pulls out as well. Another yeah. great shot. Um, and... There are people watching, and the sound is synced to the image, and he's playing it, and it's it's somehow mixing the non-diegetic with the diegetic together in this weird, harmonious, fucking awesome chamoz, <laughs> and it needs to be watched by everyone. And of course, this is happening while these two are facing off, ready to finally draw, after they've done this amazing like two and a half minute sequence of both getting in position to draw, and you're just like you're sitting there like. <laughs> I didn't make a sound he's, there. He's but doing it, a he's doing a face. He's, yeah. he's happy. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then eventually leads to the draw. Harmonica draws first. Mm. Kills Henry Fonda, but at the last moment, Henry Fonda's dying. Asks who he is, and he just takes R. the R. harmonica out and puts it in Henry Fonda's mouth, and then he dies. And you just at this point, you've officially hit the crescendo, the climax, if you will. <laughs> Of both you and the film. <laughs> Is that uh, an outlet joke? I, I suppose so. I guess, I mean, to compare to that, I suppose my highlight scene would be the foreplay ahead of all of that because my highlight scene is the opening scene. Eight eight minutes, 53. That, the ending? Yeah. Or the, yeah, very nice. Just that whole sequence there. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I love I love the... I mean, I love that scene as well, or that, that sequence, if you will because of the way it's edited, I guess. But the opening is just... 
I was just from from the get go. I was like, this is just incredible, and it, it cemented my my love for the soundtrack. The way the kind of the engine and the train almost acted as like a musical heartbeat. Mm-hmm. It's just a rise of tension, rise of tension, rise of tension. It just does it the whole time, and um, I don't know. I just I was I was blown away, and going into that knowing the whole Vince Gilligan sort of director required viewing sort of thing, I was like. I got what I expected out of that. Absolutely. Now, before we do anything else, I want to play a little game with you, Zeke. You want to play a little game. So, we both noticed several times throughout this film where we're like, oh, that guy looks like that actor. It is true. Interesting. So, I'm going to name some ancestors, if you will. The ancestors of the actors I'm about to name. And Mm -hmm. you have to tell me if you can remember which part of the film they were from. You ready for this? I am ready. All right. The first one. The ancestor of Don Cheadle is in this film. Where? He's the African-American man at the start of the film. You were correct. Ding, ding, ding. All right. Woody the- Strode. Ah, well, there you go. That was quick. Holy crap. Mm. <laughs> All right, the next one. The ancestor of Jack Black. He's the guy who owns the laundromat. Mm, um, he's, and he's he also gets- the rat to Morton. Right, and he gets, he's the one that gets his neck tie yes. thing in the little rolly thingy mouth. His name is Lionel Stander. Da, 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 da. That's my, that's my, me being mm. experimental with the ding-dings. Next one is Ryan Gosling, the ancestor of Ryan Gosling. He's the dude on the train that Cheyenne kills. Mm, he dies very quickly from memory. Oh, wait, or is that Ian McGregor? I might be getting them mixed up. It might be. I mean, that's Ian McGregor you're talking about. Oh, um, Ryan Gosling. Harmonica is the guy who scout. Uh, he's the guy who's scouting the house when Harmonica and Jill McBain are there, and he gets mm. shot off his horse. Yeah, it's immediately killed. Yes. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Those are the four. So uh, they all look. Yeah, if very you watch similar. the film, they look exactly like them. All four of them. Mm-hmm. And we also saw a lookalike for. Um, uh, I'm forgetting his name. He passed away just last week, and we talked about it. Um. Josh Forrester, Robert Forrester. Thank Robert you. Forrester. Um, we also had a look like in there. Uh, we decided not to include him because he wouldn't have been an ancestor. In fact, he just started acting. Could have been like, a brother that year. It could have been a brother. You never know. But we literally looked up. It was not Robert Forrester. But yeah, well, that's my game. Those are our highlight scenes, Zeke. Mm-hmm. That's once upon a time in the West. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> no, honestly, once upon a time in the West is out on. Every, pretty much anywhere. DVD, Blu-ray, 4K, all of that jazz. It's incredible. Watch this film. So good. No worries, Jake. Well, if we're moving into new movies coming out this week, what is coming out? Well, it's, it's funny because this week there's a lot of a lot of throwbacks this week. Throwbacks. So on Wednesday, they're replaying The Shining. On Friday, they're replaying Terminator 2, which you've never seen. I have never even seen Terminator. Damn. So maybe I'll Those- watch both. Those two films are incredible. And on Sunday, I believe they're doing the Friends 25th anniversary screening. Where What's the deal with that? They just play, they play like several episodes on loop. Yeah. I don't know. Can't, I haven't even watched the whole Friends. I watched the first season. I don't think I watched a single episode of Friends ever. Yeah. It's it's strange yeah. to think about. Yeah. Um, but, well, Jake, I guess... Well, there's, there's more. Oh, there's not, more. Not there's just more. throwbacks. It's not just throwbacks. Hold our horses Sorry. in the West. No, it's okay. Um, coming out this Sunday as well is The Light, which is actually... Very locally shot film in Kalgoorlie, actually. It's about Ben and his friends fighting back against a mysterious group of twisted masked criminals, uh, directed by Zach Inglis. And I mentioned this because 
I donated to it a couple of years back when they were in pre-production. Yeah. So uh, this that's this Sunday, I'm going to the premiere in Luna. So if they're still selling tickets, I believe, so that's out. And I have a couple of mates uh, who are acting in it. Some I've worked with before and some I haven't, but all great lads to top it off. Uh, and a few other random ones, Ready or Not, which is that kind of horror comedy sort of thing. It's like that Simpsons episode where Mr. Burns hunts everyone in the Treehouse of Horror thing. So that's that. A film called Promises comes out. In 1953, two young Italian children are promised in, uh, promised in marriage by their fathers. 21 years on, despite changing times, fading traditions, and 70s liberation, the pair are expected to marry or face the consequences. That also sounds like a Simpsons episode where Apu has to get married to someone who he was friends with as a kid. And tradition beats all. And the last one, we'll talk about Blinded by the Light, a joyful celebration of Bruce Springsteen's music when discovering the boss radically changes one British Pakistani and teenager's life. So, yeah. Keen for that one. Yeah, I, I thought you would get a kick out of I mean, I have, I have uh, uh, heard of it. I watched the trailer. It's been okay. getting pretty good reviews, sitting on an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. So maybe I'll go give it a watch. That's pretty good. Yeah. But, Jake, we're not watching that next week. Yeah, we're not watching any of those. Well, we might be, but we're not doing them for our film of the week. It's not the film of the week. Mm. But what is the film of the week, Jake? Film of the week, Trumbo. I love our country, and it's a good government, but anything could be better. You talk like a radical, but you live like a rich guy. It's the perfect combination. The radical may fight the purity of Jesus. But the rich guy wins with the cunning of Satan. In 1947, a successful screenwriter, Dalton Trumbo, and other Hollywood figures get blacklisted for their political beliefs. Didn't uh, What's-His-Face get uh, nominated for a Best Actor? Mr. Brian Cranston got nominated. Mr. Brian Cranston. And he lost to Leo that year. He did. So it was a bit of a tour for me, because it was like, Leo finally gets an Oscar, but in favour of uh, Cranston losing out on it. But that that's fine. I We've both seen this film before, but mm. uh, I think it's a good time to revisit it. We've talked about Brian previously. Yep. Uh, we just did Once Upon a Time in the West, in which this film does take place part, just before uh, this time. Probably towards the end of the Blacklist era. Yes. So it's probably just a bit off time-wise, but it, it serves our purpose of going back a bit into Hollywood history. Yeah, exactly. So I'm looking forward to watching it. Um, it's really weird. It's called a, dr- a drama crime. I would not say oh, this. No that's way. Weird. That is weird. This is definitely not a crime film. No, whatsoever. it's definitely a drama. Not it's a, a biopic drama. Yeah. So yeah. Bit of a weird, weird well, thing. We'll be watching it next week on the show. Clearly. So Trumbo next week. Thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Trumbo. Trumbo.